Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. So we're in Luke chapter 13, 10 through 17. We'll have the verses on the screen so that you can follow along with it as it goes. I'm going to start like this. So suffering is like dangerous water. Last year I went whitewater rafting on the Penobscot River. Great family fun, a little intense, so there was no kids with us if you've ever done it. It's level four and five, rapids, whatever that means, but for this area of the country, they are legit. It was great. Everybody survived. When you go, you have to watch a video, you have to go through a safety orientation, you need to sign a waiver because evidently your life is on the line and you can die. One of the things that the guides all tell you is if you get thrown out of the raft or the raft goes over, make sure you keep your feet up because if they get pinched in a rock, the rapids are so intense that you won't be able to get yourself back up. The rapids will keep you underwater and your body will stay under and your head will stay under. The rapids are stronger than you. So it's really not something that a human being should do, but we did it. You're going over falls, so we went over these falls like exterminator and troublemaker and murder. And we did a bunch of them fine, and we're cruising along, and the day is going great, and confidence is very high. And we go over this nice little waterfall, and we think we make it through, and we get sucked back in backwards, and the whole raft goes over. It happened quickly in that moment between life and death for me, but I was able to think very... um, very intently and my mental processes were firing, right? I remembered to keep my feet above the water. I lost a shoe, that was gone, but I kept my feet up. I remember thinking, oh man, someone else is gonna have to take care of my family now. I remember thinking, what if I come to get back up and the boat's on top of me? But none of that stuff happened. My shoe was gone, I kept banging into the rocks, right? I was very disoriented. I needed help, I was in trouble. But then my tour guide, I look over, he's surfing on the raft. He's pulling people to safety. (laughs) And the fact that I saw that he saw me made all the difference. He knew where I was. He was able to guide me to safety. Him seeing me was the most important part. Now, suffering is like this, right? There is danger of getting stuck. Your feet can get stuck in the rock, The danger is that you're going to be pulled in further. You can be kept down by the waters of pain and anguish, and it can seem like you're going to drown. Suffering is a reality we deal with that is dangerous on a soul level. Now, the only hope that we have in suffering is that someone who is outside of the situation with the power and the will to save can see us. So does Jesus see us? That is what we're going to do this morning. So the text opens. We're going to dive right into it. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. And it tells us that Jesus, the teacher, is in a synagogue on the Sabbath. So what I want to do first is orient us back to Luke chapter 4 for just a, just a minute. Because Luke chapter 4 is the first time that Jesus walks into a synagogue. And it helps us to understand what Jesus does and what Jesus says in our verses this morning. 
So Jesus walks into a synagogue for the first time, Luke chapter 4. He grabs a Bible, he opens it to Isaiah 61, and he reads this out loud to everybody who's in the synagogue. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this is important for us to start here, and this is, I start here because as soon as Jesus stepped onto the ministry scene, we see that his message has remained consistent and his mission is unchanged. This is what Jesus came to do. So in our text today, he's back in a synagogue and he physically and spiritually does for a woman in front of a bunch of people exactly what these words in Isaiah said that Jesus came to do. He came to proclaim good news to those who are poor. We are about to see a woman, very poor, about to get really good news. He says that he, pro- he came to proclaim liberty to the captives. This bent over woman is about to be set free. He came to free those who are oppressed. The weight that has bound this woman and is crushing this woman is about to be removed. So the physical body of this woman is about to get wonderful, is about to give us a wonderful image of what it means to encounter Jesus in his kingdom power. Right? I'm going to take a risk and state that one way of understanding the Gospel of Luke is to see it as a Western movie. Western movie plots are usually the same simple thing. Good town goes bad when the bad guys come in. The cowboys bring with them all their bullying and all their fear, and the town turns into a living hell for the townsfolk. And then what happens? A good guy with a badge and a gun comes into town and he wipes out all the riffraff and he restores peace to the town. That is one way of seeing the Gospel of Luke. Luke is always talking about these kingdom narratives of Jesus' kingdom coming and clashing with the existing kingdom of the world and Satan. So if you're okay with that image, that is one way of explaining Luke's Gospel and it is one way of seeing it, seeing this story this morning. So that's the setting, right? That's the context that we're in. And the next verse tells us what's gone wrong with the town. And it says there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over. She could not fully straighten herself. The woman in the synagogue has been living like this for 18 years, bent in half, walking around. The woman's body is the western town that has gone wrong. There is something wrong that came in from the outside and got inside of her. Now, 18 years, the more you think on that, the more it's easy to understand that that's a long time to suffer in a physical, somewhat unmanageable condition. If you've ever had suffering in your body that is chronic and won't go away, you know that pain makes all other areas of your life more difficult, maybe even miserable, right? Because physical pain can lead to mental suffering, right? Your mind, your body, your soul, they're one cohesive, it's one cohesive thing of many parts. When your body suffers, it messes with your mind. So physical suffering can lead to dark mental places. Physical suffering and then 
the resulting mental, spiritual suffering can lead to relational suffering, right? Those around you are impacted in many various ways, and it puts a strain on the relationship. My point is that pain makes regular life really hard. And this has been that lady's story for 18 years. Every day she cannot straighten herself and she lives with some form of community ostracism and she's an outcast. Where is God? Does God care? Is this what life is? Why am I dealing with this? How is this fair? Physical pain drives spiritual questions for us. Now, before we dive into whether or not God cares or what is happening with this woman and what God is doing, I do want to spend a little bit of time dealing with these two words, disabling spirit. So, disabling spirit. I think it's an important aspect of the story. I think that it helps us understand this in our modern context. The question I want to address is this. Is all physical suffering spiritual? Is all physical suffering spiritual? Is everyone okay if I talk about my feet for a second? If you're prone to fainting, you might need to leave. I'm joking. I'm going to use my feet because it's silly and because no one's probably ever talked about their feet from the pulpit in pulpit history. So I think what is happening to my feet is called plantar fasciitis. Right? I had a consultation about a week ago with Dr. Google. That's what I found out. My feet hurt often. I am all of a sudden complaining about them a lot, right? So here's the question. Is it the devil that is in my feet? Is my feet pain a spiritual condition? Well, in one sense, the answer is very easy because through collective wisdom, through trial and error, through historical evidence, my feet get worse in some shoes and they get better in other shoes, Running long distances, if you can call what I do now running long distance, makes my feet worse. Exercising and jumping around and doing things like that makes my feet worse. So it's apparent to me that I have a physical condition with a natural explanation. Now that's okay because we live in a physical world with natural processes that obey laws. However, it is not false to say that the reason my feet hurt is because the world is broken. So if I go to a doctor and I get my feet inspected and the doctor says, okay, Matt, I've inspected your feet. I know what's wrong with them. Adam sinned. The first thing I would say is, finally, a sane doctor that I can trust. The second thing I would say is, agreed, but do you think that new shoes might help? So in that sense, the brokenness of the world is a spiritual brokenness that has extended to my aging body, right? Yes, my feet, in that sense, are a spiritual condition. What's the point I'm driving at? Our physical conditions are taking place in a world of cosmological disorder. I didn't make that sentence up. I read it in a a commentary this week, but I loved it. He said, this woman's physiological condition was a result of cosmological disorder. So we're going to get back to the woman in one minute. In one sense, you can explain my feet and other pain like it that you might be dealing with it, dealing with as, um, a, as a physical, natural condition. That's likely true. But that doesn't really answer the why. 
It doesn't answer the why if you don't accept that the natural world is all there is and it's caused by nothing. The answer to the why all the way down at the root of the matter is that the world is broken and its brokenness is a spiritual condition. And its cosmological disorder in our natural world is, is, what make, is what's making our world unnaturally wrong. So continuing our Western motif, the entire universe is the once good and prospering town that has gone bad with cowboys. It might seem silly, pretty silly and petty to say that my feet hurt because Adam sinned, but that's a true statement. So we can all agree that physical suffering, that not all physical suffering is explicitly caused by supernatural forces although physical suffering is a result of this cosmological disorder. The devil is not the one in my feet or causing my feet pain. So then we take that back to the woman in the story. Is it the devil that is doing this to this woman's back? Is Luke telling us that it is literally the devil who is doing this to this woman? So there are places in Luke where you would go and you would say, yes, what Luke is telling us is a case of demon oppression, right? There's many instances where in the book of Luke that is actually the case. A dark, demonic, spiritual force is causing physical expressions in people's bodies. The Bible gives us categories for understanding that in, in our own 21st century context, even though it's harder to see and understand, but no less real. So in the case of this woman, Luke doesn't say that this is demon possession, but he is saying that what is wrong with her is what's wrong with her physically is connected to a spiritual reality. So this, this gets complicated. We don't know too much more about it with this woman, just the knowledge that her physical condition is connected to spiritual brokenness. What are we supposed to do with that information? Most Christians today are likely afraid to say something is the devil. Right? On one extreme, you've got the guy driving down the highway, his engine freezes, and he's saying that it was the devil, and he's cursing the devil for blowing up his engine, but really he just has never changed his oil. That's one, that's one end of it. On the other end of it, um, where, did I, where did I go? On the other end of it, I lost my place. Give me a second. Sorry, I don't know where I am right now. I am very disoriented, and this is causing great suffering. <laughs> On the other end of it, you have someone who would say there's nothing is the devil, right? A red person with a pointy tail. The devil must just be a personification of brokenness, but not a real person, right? So that is a different kind of error and different kind of thinking that we would probably be more prone to today. So this is what I do with this text. First, the nose, right? I wouldn't speculate on whether or not someone is suffering physically because of a spirit, right? I simply wouldn't draw that conclusion or speak to someone suffering in that way unless God explicitly revealed it in a powerful way, as he does in this Luke text, right? Luke knows through witness in Jesus' words that this woman is afflicted spiritually, so that would be a caution to us. We need to be careful with that. 
But as for the yeses, right, we would acknowledge that our physical world and our physical suffering is part of the brokenness in our world and is certainly used by demonic forces to separate us from God. This is the most important part for us this morning. We need to know that our physical suffering is, in fact, used as a tool of the enemy. It would be a work of Satan to use our physical suffering to create in us a spirit that grows distant from God. So, for example, if our physical suffering is causing us to grumble often without repentance, if our physical suffering is robbing us of joy, if our physical suffering is forcing us to be anxious or bringing us into depression often, God forbid if our physical suffering is causing our faith to wane in God. We need to know that our physical suffering is a tool of the enemy. The world is broken. We are broken in it. Satan loves that stuff, and he's going to use it against us. So for us, it's to be mindful of our souls when we're suffering. Now back to the woman. This is the life of the woman for 18 years. Jesus says that Satan has bound her. She is physically suffering. We've covered that. She's dealing with spiritual oppression and cosmological brokenness. We covered that. Now what's the main point? Does God care? The next verse says this. Jesus saw her. Jesus saw her. These, are the main, these words are the main course. This lady has been drifting off to sea with the waves smashing her, and now Jesus sees her. Right, so picture Jesus surrounded by a bunch of people in a synagogue, and he's looking over the room, and in the distance, he sees this woman walk by at a 90-degree angle. Humans are not meant to walk around like that. Jesus sees it. Whatever ailment, Whatever is wrong with her body, whether it's a slip disc or it's scoliosis, whatever would, whatever would resolve it medically, or whatever is going on in her back spiritually, whether it's some divine allowance of demonic oppression or she's just simply suffering inside the brokenness of creation, Jesus sees her now. So yes, God cares. This lady's life has been queued up to meet God in this very powerful and dramatic way. Her story of being the bent back lady is about to change forever, and she is going to be the physically redeemed daughter of God. Here is the moment where she encounters unmistakable grace and mercy. So Jesus sees her, and the next part of the verse tells us that he called her over. I love that. Jesus called her to him. He says, woman, You are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. So in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, Consider what God has done. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Well, here's an example of God making a crooked thing straight. He can do both. The crooked lady walks over to Jesus, and Jesus makes the crooked lady straight. That's what happened. You ever go to sleep at night with a plastic water bottle next to your bed? You wake up in the middle of the night, you reach over for the plastic water bottle, and the crinkling of it is such that it wakes everybody in the house up? That's what happens when Jesus touches this lady's back. Everyone in the synagogue wakes up. 
Have you ever put your hands behind your back like this and gone up to someone bigger than you and said, hey, pick me up, crack my back? And then everybody standing around thinks that you're never going to walk again because of the sound that just came out of your body? That is nothing compared to a lady at 18 years, for 18 years, being made immediately straight. So it was probably a loud event, but that's not the point, although I like to speculate on those types of things. The focus of the text is that Jesus sees, Jesus calls, Jesus makes crooked things straight, and once crooked things are made straight, they glorify God. That's the focus of the text, and it's an image for us of salvation. All of us are bent over with sin, without hope, suffering, weighed down by our burdens, and then Jesus sees us. No one is made to be bent over in the kingdom of God. No one walks around in the kingdom of God like that. So Jesus lays his hands on us and makes us stand upright. Our sins are taken away. Our burden is lifted. We can stand straight up because Jesus has healed us and made us to walk upright in the kingdom without shame, glorifying God for what he's done. This is our ultimate hope. So we rejoice in the lady whose back is made straight in this story, but we marvel at the power Jesus displays of the kingdom come because it births in us a hope of future eternal glory. Now we could probably end right there, and it would be a good place to do so, but the story doesn't stop, right? In fact, what it, what it turns to is a sadder spot, and it turns to a man who should have been the first one to clap and rejoice over what just happened, and he's upset. So we turn our focus here to the ruler of the synagogue. It says he became indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and he said to the people, there are six days which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. It doesn't seem like the ruler of the synagogue is mad about the healing, it seems that he's mad that it took place on the Sabbath. So if it happened on a Tuesday, maybe he would have been happy. So it's hard for us to understand this in our context. Why would anybody be, why would anybody be mad about a woman tormented with a back issue finding rest and healing? What it does is it shows us how far human tradition and certain interpretations of God's word can take people away from a right understanding of who God is. So this part of the story is a sad reality. But to speak positively of the ruler, he is trying super hard to maintain a Jewish identity in the midst of a broken history. Right? If you want to maintain a unique identity through years and years of turmoil, turmoil and change, you must be unflinching in your commitments to certain cultural practices. So that helps us understand maybe his rigidity and in his mind, this lady's plight is not life-threatening enough to threaten Sabbath day observance, which is a key cog in Jewish identity. The issue is that he himself, the rulers, the, syn the uh, synagogue leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, they had gotten themselves to a place in Israel's history that we see here where they had warped God's commands for Sabbath observance, and they turned it into cold and petty human traditions. So he misses completely that Jesus is finally giving this lady Sabbath rest. He misses that Jesus is Sabbath rest. 
Now, he doesn't know that clearly about Jesus, so he challenges Jesus' authority in front of the people, and he turns to the people, and he tries to reassert himself as the rightful ruler of the synagogue. So the verses go on, and that's where we see that Jesus calls him a hypocrite, and he points to the animals that this man unties at his own post in his yard and brings to the watering trough on Sabbath. So notice that Luke now calls Jesus Lord. This man has just challenged the Lord. And because the ruler is referencing one of God's Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, which is you shall observe observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, Jesus goes back there. The commandment that no one was to work on the Sabbath extended to animals. But no one had interpreted that to mean that you couldn't bring your ox or your donkey on a Sabbath day over to get water. Because that's not the point and that's not what it says. Jesus is saying, even you, the ruler, you do that for your animals. What more should be done for a daughter of Abraham, a daughter of God, who's been oppressed by Satan? The answer, of course, which the ruler should have known is that she should be untied and led to water. This is why Jesus calls the ruler a hypocrite. Because he's in a position where he is supposed to know who God is, and he doesn't. His religion is not real. So the story ends, of course, with the hypocrite being exposed and Jesus being seen as the rightful ruler. The enemies of God are put to shame, and the people of God rejoice. Jesus has just walked into town. There was bad guys there. He got rid of the bad guys. The town is rejoicing. The ruler teaches us not to miss the suffering of a brother and sister because we aren't the ones suffering and we have really great theological and sometimes misguided conclusions, right? So that's what the ruler teaches us. But I want to draw out some other points from the broader story. And the first one is this. It's that Jesus sees. There are people in this church who are suffered. There are people in this church who are suffering. Now, a little bit on me. I'm still learning not to be the younger know-it-all Christian who has all the best theological answers, even though I haven't had to live it yet. So I'm still working on that. One of my fears is that I would get up here and preach a sermon that is, suffer well, Christian, mainly because I haven't had to suffer, and then if God brings suffering into my life, I'm afraid that I would start cursing God, that I would start to lose faith. Now, I trust him to not let me fall like that, and that, in fact, drives me to prayer. Oh, God, don't let me lose sight of you if you give me suffering. The reality is no one knows what life is going to bring them, or what God has in store for their life. It is, in fact, the best and greatest hope that we have because God is good and it's not up to us. But at the same time, that is incredibly scary because God is all-powerful and it's not in our control, it's in his. It's taken away from our control. When this lady walked into the room, she had no idea that she was going to encounter God. Maybe she had great faith, But on that day, she did not know what it was going to mean to be seen by Jesus. So is your suffering a spiritual matter? You would have to work that out with God. Is your suffering 
a result of being broken in a broken world. But man, it feels like Satan is using that thing to draw, drive a wedge between you and God. If that's the case, don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus sees you. He does. And when Jesus sees you, there isn't anything that he can't make right. The last point I want to point out is this, future joy. That we would have a hope and an expectation in our suffering of future joy. If you've ever seen someone maybe playing football or some other sport get hit in the head really hard and they get up and they're stumbling around and the next thing that happens is they're put on a bench and a flashlight goes in their eye and they're being asked if they know what their name is. Suffering can cause that kind of spiritual disorientation in us. The suffering rocks us so hard that the character of God is forgotten. We forget that God is good. We lose sight of God as love. We lose sight of God is in control. And because of it, we stumble around a bit and we start to lose the joy of salvation. The woman in our story is a shadow of what eternal security is. Yes, her suffering was ended on that day when she met Jesus. But it is in our Bible to remind us that there is a day coming when our suffering will be ended and we will see Jesus as he sees us, and we will be made right forever. If you are the one suffering right now, and it is spiritually disorienting, trust and believe that Jesus sees you, and then let that knowledge that Jesus is going to bring you safely to shore cause you to rejoice even in your sufferings. Would you pray with me?